Good stuff. If you got your Bibles, you can turn to Zechariah chapter 9. We're going to dive back into our, our series here in Zechariah. We've been like five weeks since we've with us on holidays and stuff since we've been there. And so we're going we're gonna to pick it up. And uh, so Zechariah chapter 9. The second last book in your Old Testament. Sometimes turning to those minor prophets are hard. You're like <laughs> flipping trying to find them. So right on. Hey, uh, let's, let's just uh, pray as we come to God's word this morning. Lord, we just thank you for this great privilege that we have today, Lord, to be together, your people, to come and, to come and worship you, Lord. Let's pray, Father, for, for those that aren't here with us this morning, maybe away on holidays, Lord, just your grace and blessing be upon them. And Lord, I just uh, think about Sam this morning, too, who's, who's home and ill. And uh, Lord, I just pray that you'd meet him in a, in a special way, God, that he would just sense your grace and your love upon him, Lord, even though maybe the days of the calendar are passing by. And Lord, Lord did he just... You'd remind him it's Sunday, Lord, and it's a day of worship, and that your presence would be with him, Lord. Strengthen him, fill him with the hope of the gospel, Lord. We pray for his healing, Lord Jesus. And uh, just that your peace would be over the Simpson home, Lord, and just give them wisdom and grace, God. And Lord, uh, and it just reminds me of the privilege that we have together to just be here together today, Lord, to be. I have the privilege to worship, to be in your word. And Lord, we just ask uh, for a spirit of wisdom and revelation as we come to this section of scripture that's about prophecy, things that have unfolded and things that haven't yet, that Lord, that you would give us a heart to understand, that there would be practical things that come out of this for us, Lord, and that we would grow in our knowledge of you, Lord. And, uh, and so God, we just commit this time to you in Jesus' name, amen. Right on. So back into Zechariah. Uh, as, we, as we get back into this, let me give you a, a quick reminder of, of what the scene is as Zechariah is there with the people of Israel. He's, he's one of what they call the post-exilic prophets, along with Malachi and Haggai. The three of them were on the scene after the Israelites had come um, back from 70 years in captivity in Babylon. They had returned to the land of Jerusalem. Zechariah and Haggai were the two major prophetic voices as the people were rebuilding the city, as they were rebuilding the temple. And uh, as all that was getting started, Zechariah was just a young man, a young priest. And now as we've come to all the way to Zechariah chapter 9 uh, this morning. We're in the second, we're just, we're coming into the second half of his writings. And they're not dated. Where we've seen through the earlier parts of this book, we could actually like see dates and recognize when this is happening. And so many, many scholars say this. They say, ah, likely he's an old man now. Likely this is later on in his life and in the later part of his ministry, he was a young man when God began to speak to him and use him as a prophetic voice to the nation. But now likely the temple's finished. Some of that work is done. You guys just see that big spit that went flying out of my mouth? The, the work's done and he, he's an older man. And Zechariah, uh, the second half of the book is actually made up of two oracles. Two 
words from the Lord. And this morning, we're going to look at the entirety of the first one, Zechariah 9 through 11. It's a lot. We're going to move fast. And then we're going to look at the second one next week. And so these two oracles make up uh, the last six chapters of this little book. And they're pretty, they're, they're amazing. Because here's why. They, they actually make up one of the highest uh, concentrations of messianic scriptures in all of the Bible. He's going to talk about Jesus a lot. And Jesus is going to be right at the center of, of all this truth that's proclaimed. And, and so there's a, there's a lot of Jesus in Zechariah 9 through 14. But as we're going to see is, is it, relate, it relates to the nation of Israel and their relationship with him. And so Zechariah reveals Jesus, we're going to see, as, as Messiah, as humble king, as loving shepherd, as mighty warrior, as gracious savior, as a righteous ruler, uh, as a righteous ruler who will reign on earth as both king and priest. And so we're in the first half of his writings, the emphasis was on, on the temple. That's not done. That's now completed. Okay, that's all taken... That's all taken care of, and now the emphasis is on the, on the coming of the Messiah, the Christ, on Jesus. And, and you know, it just makes me think, you know, here, here the temple is the centerpiece of, of worship for the Jewish people. But we know this, it was truly never really about a building, it was all about who inhabits the temple, Right? And the same is true for us as a church. Here we are, we gather, you know, we got a funky space. We, we don't have a traditional kind of church spot. We meet in an old nightclub. And we have this building, but it's not about where we gather. It's about who is with us when we gather, isn't it? It's about Jesus Christ with us. We, we, we need buildings to worship. We got to have that. We got to have places to gather. But the, but the reality is, is that it's all about Jesus and his relationship to his people and meeting with his people. And so we come to this, this second half of the writing of Zechariah. Now, it kind of makes me think of, do you remember when the children of Israel came uh, to the boundaries of the promised land? Moses had led them through the wilderness wanderings. And as they got to the top of the mountain and they looked into the promised land, the Lord spoke to Moses and he says, you're not going to enter. You, you're not entering for you. This is how far we're going to go. This is the end of the road. And the scripture tells us that the, loud, the Lord allowed Moses to survey all of the promised land before he died. I don't know, I don't know how that works. You know, in my mind, I always think, wow, this is, this is like have an out-of-body experience. What happened? Was it just vision from the top of the mountain? But whatever it is, he surveyed all of the promised land without, without entering it. And he saw all of its, you know, sweeping, extensive nature. Now, in a sense here, that's almost what happens to Zechariah. What's going to happen is this, is that the Lord reveals to him these oracles. And supernaturally, Zechariah gets to see the whole messianic plan and the coming of Jesus. It's like he's standing on the mountaintop and the Holy Spirit takes him and reveals to him the sweeping, extensive, comprehensive view of the coming of the Messiah. And he's going to talk to us about it. And, you know, one of the privileges we have as, as New Testament Christians, followers of Jesus, is that we, we got hindsight. We get to look back, you know. 
we get to look back with hindsight and recognize that, that Jesus came once and he's coming again. That there's the first advent of the Christ and there's going to be the second coming of, of the Christ. But Zechariah didn't have that understanding. The Old Testament prophets didn't have that. They didn't recognize that the Messiah was coming in two parts. We have that privilege uh, of knowing that, that Jesus would be first born as a, as a babe in Bethlehem, laid in a manger. Scripture describes him as the suffering servant. He came, he laid down his life for the sins of mankind. But we also know this, he's coming a second time as the conquering king. And so one of the things you're going to see as we read this, and, and you often see this in the writings of the Old Testament prophets, is that often they will flip between speaking of the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ without defining the two for you. Without distinguishing them, not realizing that between the, the two, you know, these two mountain peaks is this great valley of time. This great period of time that we're living in and and that's actually why when Jesus did come and proclaimed himself to be the Son of God and the Christ, uh, people were confused by what he was doing. You know, they were waiting for him to usher in peace, waiting for him to usher in prosperity, waiting for Jesus to crush the Romans and to bring Israel into the kingdom age. And they didn't comprehend that first he had to come and die. Needed to purchase for humankind freedom for sin and death. And that the coming of the, the kingdom was first spiritual before it would be physically manifested at his second coming. So let's check it out. We're going to see this. Zechariah is going to go back and forth between the first and second coming of Christ. And so it says this in Zechariah chapter 9 verse 1. Judgment on Israel's enemies. The oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach. And Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and all the tribes of Israel. So the Lord says this to them. I'm watching and now I'm going to speak this oracle against the land. And as the Lord reveals this to Zechariah, Zechariah is going to see something that Daniel also saw. It's something quite amazing and it's this. Before he talks about Jesus, the coming of Alexander the Great. Let's check it out. Verse 2. And on Hamath also, which borders on it, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise, Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust, fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike her down by the power of the sea. And she shall be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid. Gaza too shall writhe in anguish, Ekron, because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited, as a mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of Philistia. And so what Zechariah begins to describe here, beginning with Damascus, is all of the cities that Alexander the Great came and conquered. In fact, Zechariah describes here the exact path that Alexander takes when he, can, when he comes from Greece. And now, the crazy thing is, is this 150 years before Alexander's coming? So, so Zechariah just describes this stuff. He goes on. Verse 7. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth 
It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Now check out verse 8. This is key. It says this, Then I will encamp at my house as a guard. We know where that house is, right? It's the house we've been talking about through Zechariah. It's talking about the temple. Then I will encamp at, at my house as a guard so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them. For now I shall see it with my own eyes. So Zechariah prophesies, this is about Damascus, about Tyre and Sidon to the north, about the cities along uh, the coast of the Mediterranean to the, to the west of Jerusalem, that they will be conquered, that there will be this sweeping power that comes through and they will be destroyed. But God himself will encamp at Jerusalem. He will protect Jerusalem and they will, they will be guarded by him. Now history records this exact thing that Alexander the Great swept through. Daniel, the prophet Daniel prophesied the same thing. He prophesied about the sweeping nature. Daniel chapter 8 with which Alexander would come and, and would conquer all of these cities. But when he came to Jerusalem, it would be different. Something different would happen. Now Josephus, the, the Jewish Roman historian, actually records what happened when Alexander came to Jerusalem. In fact, before he arrived at the city, the high priest had a dream. God spoke to him in a dream. And he told him to adorn the city for himself to dress in white, for the elders of the city to dress in white, and for the people of the city to dress in white, and the priest and the elders were to go out and they were to meet Alexander as he was coming to Jerusalem to destroy Jerusalem. And so Josephus says that they did that. They went out and they met Alexander and they brought with them the scriptures and they showed to Alexander Daniel chapter 8. They said, our prophets have prophesied that this would happen and that you would come and they showed him this, the scriptures and Alexander was amazed. And what happened was this, instead of destroying Jerusalem, he went to the temple and he offered a sacrificial lamb for his sins and he worshiped God at the temple there in Jerusalem. Oh, it's like, wow, that's crazy. Like when you, when you think about it, now what does that have to do with the Messiah? What does that matter? This is all about Jesus. This text is going to be all about Jesus. Why does that matter? Well, we know this, that, that, that the conquests of Alexander the Great and the advancement of Greek society and culture prepared the way for the coming of Jesus. Greek be, uh, became the language of the world. You know, he unified the known world and he paved the way for the Romans to come. And when the Romans came, you know, they brought their roads and their structure and their government and their law. Uh, you know, Greek was the, the culture and language of, of their empire. Our, our Bible, New Testament, what's it written in? Greek, the original language was in Greek. And so Greek culture was, was mixed with Roman roads and government and law and all of these things. And it was the perfect, Pax Romana was the perfect ground for the spread of the gospel perfect ground for the coming of Jesus, perfect ground for the growth of the early church. And in all of it, throughout the history of, from Alexander right through um, the coming of the Romans, God protected Jerusalem. And, you know, it just reminds me that the scripture says this, that, that God knows the way of the righteous, 
that the wicked will perish. And the reality is, is that the Bible says this, that, that no one touches the house of the righteous without the permission of the Lord. And so the Lord just said, I'm going to protect Jerusalem when this happens. And he did. And so it goes on in verse 9. It's titled, probably in your Bible, The Coming King of Zion. Verse 9, a verse, a verse you're familiar with. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And we know this verse, don't we? I mean, as New Testament believers, we know this verse. We know this is Jesus riding into Jerusalem, Palm Sunday, before, his cruci before the crucifixion. The people took up their palm branches. They cried, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord from Psalm 118. They, they worshiped him. They cried out literally. They were saying, save us, save us now. And what they failed to realize, we, we, we know from the gospel, is that, is that Jesus coming as a humble king riding on, on a donkey would be nailed to the cross and that he would die, that he would be buried and raised from the dead. And that he would save mankind from, from sin and death. The, the, the crowds didn't realize that. They didn't realize that no one took his life from him. They didn't realize that he willingly laid down his life. That his salvation was not political. It was eternal. That it was something that he was doing in the hearts of mankind. They didn't realize that when he was raised to life that... that, that what he was winning for humanity was eternal life. And he didn't come on a war horse. We know this. But on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He didn't come with an impressive display of might. He came humbly. You know, you could touch Jesus. You could talk to this king. You know, he related to his creation and and it's just an interesting picture that we get from Zechariah because we, we go from Alexander the Great to King Jesus, this, this contrast, you know. Here Alexander comes, and who comes and makes peace? The priest has to go out and, you know, wear their white clothes and suck up, so to speak, so that they would have peace with this man, but not our king. He's the one who comes, and he brings peace to his people. Now this is where uh, Zechariah moves from the mountaintop of the first advent of Christ, the first coming of Jesus, across that, that valley to the mountaintop of the second coming. Really they say this, that between verse 9 and 10, I actually just drew a line right across in my Bible and made this note for myself that I'd al so I'd always remember it as I'm reading through here, that, that, that the gap, the time of the church, the, the time that we're living in now comes right in between verse, verse 9 and verse 10. And so we jump to the second coming. It says this, verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the warhouse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the rivers to the end of the earth. That's the second coming. Do you hear it? His rule shall be from sea to sea. There'll be peace. There'll be peace. The armies of the world will be disarmed. The Messiah will proclaim peace. Actually, uh, 
This verse is significant for Canadians. Did you know that? From sea to sea. This is a verse that our founding fathers grabbed when they were laying down, you know, our nation and the laws and the things that, that govern us. This was a verse that was significant to the founding fathers. He shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That's actually where the title, the dominion of Canada comes from. From that verse right there. We're talking about the dominion of the Lord from sea to sea. Verse 11. As for you, also because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from a waterless pit. I love this picture of Jesus right here. He's a rescuer. And he's a rescuer because of the blood of his covenant. Because of the blood of his covenant, he will come and he will rescue his people. We're going to come back to that thought in a moment. And then it says this in verse 12. We're going to move fast this morning. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare to you that I will restore to you double. I, I, just, I just love this verse. Return to your stronghold, prisoners of hope. You know, maybe this morning, some of you have forgotten that your hope is in the blood of the covenant. Your hope is in the shed blood of Jesus Christ that was poured out for you on on Calvary's tree. That's your stronghold. The precious blood of Jesus purchased you from sin and from death. And and the prophet says here, return to your stronghold. Know that because of the blood of the covenant, you're going to be set free. You're going to be rescued. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare to you that I will restore to you double. Then verse 13 says this, For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. I'll wield you like a sword. Right, Dominique? Um, when Alexander the Great died, history tells us this is his kingdom split up into a number of parts. And one of the men that eventually became uh, ruler over that was a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. If you've ever been with us through studies through Daniel or through Revelation, you, you've, you've heard that name, Antiochus Epiphanes. He was an evil ruler. He was actually a, uh, a pre like a, like a foreshadow of the Antichrist who's eventually going to come. And he was a, a, a ruler who killed Jews by the thousands. He was the one who went into Jerusalem uh, before the time of Christ and he sacrificed on the altar there in the temple a pig. Defiled the the temple, and it was a, a bunch of Jewish men, the Maccabees, who raised a revolt against him, guerrilla warfare, and they were able to defeat him. Now, he's a, he's a foreshadow of the, the Antichrist. And so, uh, we're going to see that a little bit later, but next, w- what happens is the, the sweep, we read about the sweeping power with which Jesus will come at his second coming when he begins to deal with the Antichrist. This is the foreshadow. 
when the ultimate one comes. And so it says this in verse 14. The Lord will save his people. Then the Lord will appear over them and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bowl drenched like the corners of the altar. So speaking of the second coming of Jesus, verse 14, this image of a storm. The Lord's going to come like a storm and he'll defeat the enemies of Israel. Verse 15 is this, this image of a feast. It describes like soldiers shouting like men who are drunk, but it's not with wine, it's with blood because of their enemies being destroyed. And, and, and then in verse 16, the, the image changes and the army is pictured as a, a flock of sheep that the Messiah saves. Check out verse 16. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as a flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness and how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. Chapter 10, verse 1, the restoration of Judah and Israel. Ask rain from the Lord in season of, spring, of the spring rain. From the Lord who makes the storm clouds and he will give them showers of rain to everyone, the vegetation in the field. And so as we read this, just from 9 through to chapter 10, this is the promise of blessing at the second coming. The Lord says there's going to be grain. There's going to be food. There's going to be feasting. There's going to be new wine. There's going to be spring rain. There's going to be vegetation in the field. The land is going to flourish. It's this description of the, of the land becoming fruitful as, as, and, and beautiful as God provides. And, and, and we know one of the amazing things of the return of the people of the Jewish people to the land of Israel is just the way the land is being transformed. That which is desert and, and destroyed is just becoming a fruitful land again. Verse 2 says this. For the household gods utter nonsense. And the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore, the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. My anger is hot against the shepherds and I will punish the leaders. For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock. The house of Judah and will make them like his majestic steed in battle. From him shall come the cornerstone. From him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler, all of them together. Great promises here. What's, what's the promise from the Lord? That he'll strengthen his people. That, that, he, that he the Messiah will take people who are like sheep without a shepherd, like sheep without a shepherd, and he will make them majestic steeds for battle. Some awesome images of the Messiah here, verse 4. We, we actually sang one of them this morning. Cornerstone. Cornerstone. The cornerstone. Jesus. The foundation for his people. Zechariah says he's the tent peg. He, he holds all things together, man. He's secured them in their place. He's the battle bow. The victorious warrior who never 
loses a battle. He's taking his people. He, he's taking them from being like lost sheep and making them steeds for battle. What a great picture. Verse 5. Cruise through a big section here. They shall be like mighty men in battle, trampling the foe in the mud of the streets. They shall fight because the Lord is with them, and they shall put to shame the riders on horses. I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them, and they shall be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. Then Ephraim shall be like a mighty warrior and their hearts shall be glad as with wine. Their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. I will whistle for them and gather them in for I have redeemed them. And they shall be as many as they were before. Though I scattered them among the nations yet in far countries, they shall remember me and with their children they shall live and return. And I will bring them home from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria. And I will bring them to the land of Gilead and, and to Lebanon till there is no room for them. He shall pass through the sea of troubles and strike down the waves of the sea and all the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. The pride of Assyria shall be laid low and the scepter of Egypt shall depart and I will make them strong in the Lord and they shall walk in his name declares the Lord. Wow, the people of Israel, even though they, they rejected him, nailed him to a cross, when all the nations have gathered and they're ready to crush them and they're ready to annihilate Israel, the, the Lord is, is going to come again. And this time not, not riding on a donkey, but a white horse as a conqueror to rescue the people of Israel and and, and it'll be right at that moment when it, it appears that they're going to be annihilated and they're going to be destroyed by their enemies. And, in, and here we read this, this, this great picture of God's victory, his regathering of his people, redeeming them, reuniting them as one nation, them rejoicing in the Lord. And I just think, you know, what an amazing thing the Lord says. I'm going to whistle and they're going to just begin to come from all the nations of the earth and to begin to, to regather. But here's one of the beauties of that. You know, the Lord can pour out these same blessings upon his church. He does. We, his, his church, you know, sometimes we're scattered people, divided people. Some from distant lands, different places. But the Lord unites us as we come together in the name of Jesus. We, we become a family. You know, here, we're, we're fighting battles against the enemy. At one time, we too were lost sheep. And the Lord too is turning you and I into war horses, man. Steeds for battle for the kingdom. And the Lord wants to just do so much in our lives if we just turn to him in faith. Just say, Lord, I trust you. The work you're doing, I don't necessarily always understand. But Lord, make me into like a steed for your kingdom. And, I, and I, I love that verse 8 says the Lord is going to whistle for his people. I, I'm going to bring them back to the land and there will be so many that the land can barely contain them. That's what the prophet says here. We know what happened. 1948, the Lord blew the whistle for the first time. Just began to whistle. And the people, the, the Jewish people just began to return to the, 
to the land of, of Israel. And so Zechariah is doing this, I would say. I think this is one of the key things we could pull from this. This is what he's doing. He's calling the people of God to be big picture people. Big picture. You know, the Lord never wants us, his church, to lose sight of his big picture, his salvation story, what he is doing in the history of the world. Sometimes his believers were just like this, man, head down. It's like, man, I'm trudging, Lord. I'm barely surviving through my stuff. And the Lord says, man, open your eyes and see the big picture of what I am doing in the history of the world. You don't have to have your head down, hanging, moping, depressed. Look at how I'm at work in the world. You know, sometimes in life, I just forget where I'm headed. I don't know about you. I forget all the things Christ has done for me that Jesus is doing for me. I would say this. This is why reading the prophets is beneficial. It's, well, we'll get to the minor prophets. It can't make any sense. out of. One of the benefits of reading the prophets is this, is that the prophets are always big picture people. The big picture men. They call us to remember where we're headed and what Christ is doing, what God is doing in the history of the world. You know, sometimes we come to church, we want messages like how to have a better marriage, how to be a better husband, how to be a better wife, how to raise my kids in a culture that's this or that. You know, how to have this, how to, how to squeeze every ounce out of life. How to have a, a, a better job. We, we, we want these, sometimes these, these practical things, but one of the things that's interesting about the prophets is you never find those, do you? Never, I've never read anything like that in the prophets. They don't preach how-tos. They preach big picture. They say, Jesus is coming. Lift your eyes. Lift your eyes. And the reality is, is this. Is you want to have you know, a better marriage? You want to be a better spouse? You, you want to raise your kids to know Jesus? You want to squeeze everything you can? Be big picture, man. Set your eyes on the kingdom. Set your eyes on heaven. That'll touch the practical areas of your life. You won't need how-tos. You'll just be like, Jesus, I want to live for you, and I want my life to glorify you everywhere. Workplace, family, marriage, the deal, you change me. I'm living for your kingdom in big picture. And the prophets were big picture. And when we remember that heaven is our home, when we remember where we're headed, when we look at the political landscape of this world, it's just insane, isn't it? It's insane. Every day I'm like, man, it's more insane. Today's more insane than yesterday. That's what it feels like. And when we remember that heaven is our home, that that's where we're headed, man, it just helps us in the midst of everything we're trudging through in this life. You live for eternity, and it will touch the practical areas of your life. You know, I think of Psalm 1. It says this. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. And its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. The psalmist said this, you want to prosper in life? 
You set your mind on the things of God. Delight yourself in the Lord. You know what the scripture actually says about Jesus? It's amazing. Remember when Jesus, you know, he took off his outer garment, he got down on his knees and he washed the feet of his disciples? Peter tried to fight him off and you know the whole scene. But John actually tells us in his gospel, he says this, that Jesus washed his disciples' feet for this reason. That number one, he knew where he had come from and number two, he knew where he was going. He knew where he had come from and he knew where he was going and it allowed him to serve in his life at that place. He said, you think I'm above this? I know where I'm going. I know where I came from. I'll get down on my knees and I will serve these men for the kingdom of God because I love them. And you know, that's why the prophets speak in big picture ways. They, they want to remind us to set our hearts on things above. You know, in your quiet time, don't skip those books, man. Make your way through them. Read the prophets. Zechariah, as we know, he's called the prophet of hope. Now, just because he was the prophet of hope didn't mean that he spoke truth, right? Jesus was the perfect mix of grace and truth. Zechariah, though he was the prophet of hope, he, he, he spoke truth as well at the same time. He, he said things that, that people needed to hear, even if it was tough. And, and I would say this about these. We've moved really fast through two, two chapters here, cruise through them. And these chapters really indicate, they foreshadow for us, they tell us that in the last days, when the Messiah comes, Israel's going to be in trouble. There's going to be trouble uh, surrounding them. And so the question is, how did they get into this trouble? Well, chapter 11 tells us how they got into the trouble. So we're going to move quickly this morning through chapter 11. And it explains Israel's rejection of the Messiah and how they will accept the false Messiah, the Antichrist, who will appear at the end of, end of the age and deceive the whole world. And, and the key image in this next chapter is that of the shepherd. And Zechariah is going to present to us three different shepherds. Let's check it out. Zechariah, the flock, 11. The flock doomed to slaughter, he calls it. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen, for the glorious trees are ruined. Wail, oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has been felled. The sound of the wail of the shepherds for their glory is ruined. The sound of the roar of the lions for the thicket of Jordan is ruined. See this? There's like something going on here. He's talking about deforestation. Did you catch that? Trees, cedars, oaks. It's all ruined. The thicket of the Jordan is ruined. The thick forest has been felled. Now, history tells us one of the things that happened when the Romans just began to clamp down on the people of Israel, on that province of Palestine that they were ruling over, that the Romans began taxing. As the Jews became increasingly a problem for them, the Romans began to tax them for everything. And one of the things that they taxed them for was what? Their trees that were on their land. Oh, you got a fruit tree. Tax. Oh, you got a cedar tree. Tax. It's kind of like living in Canada, it feels like. I don't know. Tax, tax, tax. And, uh, and so what the people began to do is just, well, forget these taxes. Take the tree down. You take the tree down. We save 
on taxes. And, and so uh, they began just destroying the land. And in the east, you know, leaders were called shepherds because they led the people, they protected the people, they provided for the people. And Zechariah is saying this uh, to the Jewish people. The trouble's coming from Lebanon to Bashan. Bashan is the Golan Heights. That's the area. He's from Lebanon to the Golan Heights into the Jordan Valley. And that's exactly what happened. After Israel rejected Jesus within 40 years, Rome marched through these places. <laughs> the people started cutting down the trees. And the result was the, the eventual destruction of the temple in AD 70. So he goes on. Look at verse 4. Thus said the Lord my God, become shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them slaughter them and go unpunished, and those who sell them say, Blessed be the Lord, for I have become rich, and their own shepherds have no pity on them. The political and religious leaders of Israel after the time of Jesus sold out the flock, man. They sold out their own people, like Matthew. Remember Matthew, the tax collector, before Jesus saved them? The, the people, the shepherds, the leaders were selling out their own, pe their own people, getting wealthy by cutting deals with the Romans. And so the Lord says this in verse 6, For I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of this land, declares the Lord. Behold, I will cause each of them to fall into the hand of his neighbor and each into the hand of his king, and they shall crush the land, and I will deliver none from their hand. Boy, if you come to Israel with us next year, one of the places we will go to is Masada, the very last stronghold for a little more than a thousand Jews. After Jerusalem had been destroyed, they, they went to Masada, and the Romans said, enough of this business, we are squashing these dudes. And they finished them off. And, and, and so, you know, I guess the question is, why would the Lord do this to his people? Why would he allow this to happen to him? Well, what God tells Zechariah to do is to act out the answer before the people. Verse 7. So here's Zechariah speaking. He says this. So I became the shepherd of the flock, doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders. And I took two staffs, one I named Favor, and the other I named Union, and I tended the sheep. So Zechariah begins to act out this scene before the people, act out this parable. He sh he's shepherding this flock with two staffs. One, one shepherd's crook is called Favor, and the other staff is named Union. It reminds me of the 23rd Psalm. Thy rod and, they st and thy staff, they comfort me. Verse 8, he says this. In one month, I destroyed three shepherds, and I became impatient with them, and they also detested me. So Zacharias, he's acting out this parable. He, he takes on and he destroys three wicked shepherds. He doesn't tell us what they represent. He doesn't tell us what that's about. But think about this. Jesus, the good shepherd, when he came in a sense, took on some wicked shepherds who were to be looking after the people, and they weren't. You remember who they were? Three groups that he dealt with in the New Testament. What's the first one? Come on. The Pharisees. 
The second might be the Sadducees. And the third is the Herodians. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Herodians. The Pharisees represented legalism. The Sadducees were the, the spiritual liberals who didn't hold to the word of God. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the resurrection. The Herodians were a political group who thought they could usher in the kingdom of God using political action. All, all three of them missed that Jesus was the good shepherd. All three of them missed. They, you know this. New Testament tells us they fought against Jesus. They, they planned to kill him. They became impatient with him. Just like Zechariah says, they, they, they detested me. They hated him. So verse 9, So I said, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die, let it die. And what is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed. And let those who are left devour the flesh of one another. So after Zechariah removes these wicked shepherds, he declares, I'm no longer shepherding this flock. That's it. Why did he give up? Well, it's a picture of what would happen to Jesus. The people said this. Remember they said this? We won't have this man be our king. So Jesus said, okay. I'll give you over to what you want. You don't want me to rule over you? You reject me? I'll let you have your way. And so verse 10, I took my staff favor. I broke it, annulling the covenant that I had made with the people. You think about Jesus. He came to give the kingdom to his people, but they would not have him. And the result was this, that the opportunity for the Jewish nation was lost. lost. The, the staff was broken and the shepherd was rejected. Verse 11. So it was annulled on that day and the sheep traders who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, Give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out my wages. Does this sound familiar? 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter. The lordy price at which I was priced by them. So I took 30 pieces of silver and threw it into the house of the Lord to the potter. Wow. You got to remember that this is slightly over 500 years before Jesus came on the scene. So Zechariah is acting out this whole shepherd thing, this whole parable with the people, and the people actually wanted him to quit, man. They're like, Zechariah, that's enough. What the heck? And so when he did, he said, well, pay me. Pay me for my work. And they brought him 30 pieces of silver. He says, the lordy price at which I was priced. And Zechariah was disgusted because 30 pieces of silver we know was the price of a slave, actually the price of an injured slave. That's the price of a slave who had been gored by an ox. Something wrong with him. He can't quite do the full job. That's like, it's like as cheap as a man goes. They brought him 30 pieces of silver for his work. And so he goes to the temple. He takes the silver and he throws it into the, throws the money to the potter who was working there. Now, we all know the fulfillment of this parable, don't we? Because 500 years later, Judas sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of silver. And when he realized his betrayal and tried to give the money back to the priests, they refused. And Judas took the 30 pieces of silver 
and he threw it into the temple. And the priest said, and then, and then you know, he, he went on and he took his life. And the priest, the priest said this, this is blood money. We can't bring this into the temple treasury. So they took the money and they purchased the potter's field for burying um, foreigners. Burying foreigners. It, it, just amazing. So we see that. That's the that's fulfillment of this. And So verse 14, it says this. That after this, after Zechariah tossed the coins in, he said, I broke my second staff union, annulling the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Think about Jesus being rejected. One of the primary works of the Holy Spirit is to draw people to Jesus, to glorify Jesus, to lift up Jesus. When Jesus is rejected, the Holy Spirit is grieved. The, the, the Spirit's work, one of the Spirit's work is also to do this, to unify the body. <laughs> you know, to unify the brothers. But when Christ is rejected and the Holy Spirit is grieved and his work is quenched, one of the results of that staff being broken is disunity, brokenness, broken relationship. And the Lord says this, when, when they reject Jesus and when the Spirit of God is grieved, then the bond between Israel and Judah will be broken. And so Zechariah, here's instructed to act this whole thing out and then the Lord gives him another scene. We're going to wrap up real fast here. Zechariah was then instructed to act out the role of a foolish shepherd. So he did. Verse 15. Then the Lord said to me, Take once more the equipment of a foolish shepherd. For behold, I am raising up in the land a shepherd who does not care for those being destroyed. Or seek the young and heal the maimed or nourish the healthy, but devours the flesh of the fat ones, tearing off even their hooves. Now this here is the picture of the Antichrist. Because once They've rejected Jesus. At some point, they're going to accept a false Christ, a foolish shepherd. A foolish shepherd who does not care for the sheep, but devours them for his own benefit. And of course, we know. We see this all throughout different places in the scripture. Daniel chapter 9 is one of those spots. Matthew 24 prophesied that, that this antichrist would come. He'd make a seven-year covenant with Israel that halfway through he, he would break that covenant and, and on some level he will reenact that which Antiochus Epiphanes did. He'll set up the abomination that causes desolation. He'll break his covenant with Israel. He'll force the world to worship him. And so the Lord says this in verse 17. Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the, Lord, may the sword strike his arm and his right eye. Remember that? We've, got, we've, gone, we've gone through Revelation. Remember the Antichrist is going to be wounded at some point in time? Listen to that prophecy. A head wound we see in Revelation. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered and his right eye utterly blinded.
Lots of prophecy in there. I want you to do this this morning, just as we're going to wrap up, to, to take your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 10. Would you do that? Think about these stories of the shepherd and all this prophecy and being big picture Christians. And I think that as we, can, we consider just who Jesus is and his work in our lives, I love John chapter 10, verse 27. It says this, he's the good shepherd. Remember this? He's the good shepherd. When we talk about all these shepherds, he said, my sheep, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Amen. I mean, when I just consider all of these things that, that Zechariah is acting out, the rejection of the shepherd, these evil shepherds, this false antichrist, to me it just makes Jesus shine all the more the good shepherd. He says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. In these days, folks, in which we live, we need to be hearing the voice of Jesus. We need to be in the word of God. We need to be following him. You know, I was, I was reading this week just the, the difference between the anchor of a ship and the anchor of your soul. Here's the difference. A ship's anchor takes hold of things below while the believer's anchor takes hold of things above. And this morning, you know, it just says we go through this prophetic text, I say to you, take hold of things above in your life. Amen? Let's pray. Worship team, come on up. Close with a song here. And would you guys stand with me? Thanks for cruising through a prophecy section. It's a little different, isn't it? A little different than the rest of Zechariah. But uh, right on, let's pray.